This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Welcome to Anchor. Um, my name is Armando Arnaldo. Uh, thank you for joining us if you are first time here. We normally don't uh, speak about money so much. And um, today, actually, um, providentially, we'll be speaking on money. This is where we land on, in the Sermon on the Mount this week. And I understand that many of us may have had some bad experiences with churches and money. Uh, And I want to try to alleviate some of those, but I don't want to apologize for that because uh, money is one way that we worship. Uh, It's a major way that we worship. And in fact, uh, Jesus will confront us today in his word and ask us who we really serve, who do we truly serve. And so I don't want to apologize for it, but I want to uh, bring some light to the fact that uh, it is quite concentrated. So... Before we get into that, though, just want to, you know, I'll be going away. Uh, I just want to ask for some prayer. I'll be going away to visit some family in New York uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, and I'm going to be leaving behind my wife, who's a warrior queen. She's not here, so I can say that, and she won't be embarrassed. Um, but I love her. She's, a, she's an incredibly strong woman. But we have three sick kids at home, so if you could please uh, pray for us um, and pray for her particularly. And pray for my 33-year-old going on 84-year-old back that I can withstand uh, the trek, um, the 24-hour ride there. Uh, but before we jump in, I want to frame this uh, one in prayer, which I'll be praying, but also as, as a story. So often when I've heard uh, people speak on money, which is valid, uh, they jump straight into it. But, but I, I feel that unless we understand the story that the Sermon of the Mount, which is where, we, where we're at, where we've been for the past uh, over a bit of a month, unless we understand the story of the Sermon on the Mount, really speaking about money is not going to make much sense. So I'm going to pray, and then we will jump straight into it. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are holy and that you are good. We thank you that you are generous. And in fact, the way that you love us is by giving. And so may we have a heart of response to give. Back to you and back to those that you've called us to give to. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the other week I took uh, Anthony. Now Anthony's my, uh, I, think he's, I think he's eight or nine, I forget. Uh, I have three. <laughs> Oh, he said he has six, but he, he remembers them. Uh, but he's the best eight or nine-year-old in the world. And so I took him, I took him, I took him to see uh, this show, this book that he's been reading called Billionaire Boy. And there was a show at the Opera House, and I hadn't read it. Uh, like, I, I've generally tried to read his book, so I know what, what he's reading. But I hadn't read this one, and I was actually quite um, pleased where... Uh, with the show, because the show was about this boy whose dad became a billionaire, and he had everything in the world, but he was incredibly unhappy, and the show starts with the boy just giving out money, and, and, you know, having helicopters drop him off at school, and, you know, it's, it's a great story, but at the end, what he really needed was a friend, and underneath that whole story, the, the, the underlying text of that story is this question. What is going to make us happy? Another way to say it is what is going to lead to our flourishing? That's the story underneath the story. What is it that's going to make this little billionaire boy actually flourish in his humanity? And the Bible, we can say, is a story about human flourishing. 
And the Sermon of the Mount, its prime question, it's the center of the story of the Mount is trying to answer this very question. What kinds of people do we need to be and what kinds of things do we need to do in order to experience the greatest amount of human flourishing? What kind of people do we need to be? What kind of things do we need to do in order to experience human flourishing? Now, the Old Testament has a word for this. It's called shalom. And oftentimes, our Bibles translate that as peace. But it means a lot more than that. In fact, uh, uh, Cornelius uh, Plantinga, a theologian, he says this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And unless we see money... And treasures and talents and everything we have, unless we see that in light of what the Sermon of the Mount is trying to do, what it's trying to answer, you're just going to hear me say you need to give because that's what the Bible says. And that is enough. You know, so often I think about, so, you know, we, when, when God says to do something in this book and he tells us to give, he tells us to forgive That's enough. And yet he offers us reasons. He offers us even rewards as we do that. And now this is the question. How are we to be in the world? As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, if you follow Jesus here today, the question for you is how are you to be in the world? Who are you to be? What are you to do in order to experience human flourishing? The Sermon on the Mount, Jonathan Pennington says, is Christianity's answer to the greatest question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? So I want to back up for a minute and give you the context of the Sermon on the Mount. First, we start in creation. And creation, in in, in the first couple chapters of uh, Scripture, say that God created the world through his own will because he loved And at the end, when he sees his magnificent creation, he sings over it. He says, this is very good. And that's the context of our flourishing, where we had a relationship with God, where our relationship with the earth wasn't cursed, where our relationship with one another didn't have enmity between it. True human flourishing. And then the fall is the situation, Genesis 3, that prohibits us from flourishing because we want to be God. And we want to say, okay, God, that's what you say it looks like to flourish as a human, but we say otherwise. And then redemption means, is the means by which human flourishing, your good, becomes possible again. And finally, restoration, the end of the story, is this eschatological picture, this end time picture, which, where we receive this flourishing from God as a gift. And so we find the Sermon on the Mount dead center in redemption. How are we to flourish? How are we to be truly human? So I want to read now our text. 
and then we'll point out just a few things. I'm going to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19, and I'll be focusing on the first uh, uh, few verses and the final verse. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither Moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, if it is whole, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, who's a 19th century um, a Baptist British preacher, he said this, he said that the very last thing to be converted on a man is his wallet. We will give our time, we will give our thoughts, we will give our prayers, but it, there's something about money that we get a little squirmy about. And the question is, what does Jesus have to do with our pocketbooks? What does Jesus have to do with our bank accounts? What does Jesus have to do with our wallets? And let me just tell you two things, three things rather, that Jesus does not mean when he says, do not lay up treasure for yourself on earth. Three things he doesn't mean. Jesus is not against private ownership of property. Jesus wasn't a a socialist. He wasn't a communist. He didn't think that the government needed to own all the property. In fact, we we know this because throughout the New Testament, we see his own disciples owning property. In Matthew 8.14, Peter owns a home, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in, in John 11 own their home. So Jesus is not against property. He's not against having your name on a deed. Jesus is also not anti rich He is anti-greed. And we see uh, uh, rich disciples of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a very rich man, and it's his tomb that Jesus was laid in. Half of the New Testament scriptures that we have, the book of Luke and Acts together, are about half of the New Testament. And it was a, a very rich benefactor called Theophilus who funded Luke to write these. And so money and treasures are not the problem. Jesus is not anti-property, he is not anti-rich, and Jesus does not necessarily, although he may call some of us to poverty, but what he calls us to, all of us, is to radical generosity. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, he says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So what does Jesus mean? If he's not anti-property, he's not anti-riches, he doesn't mean uh, uh, that we are all to take vows of poverty, what does he mean? This is what he means in, in, in this text. He says, Jesus, Jesus is calling, and this is what he's calling you to. Jesus is calling for a radical shift in your relationship with your treasure. And it should be up there, but that, 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 that second hour, our treasure should be quoted, our treasure. 
Jesus is calling us to a radical shift in the way that we relate to our bank accounts, to the way that we relate to our cars, the way that we relate to our homes, the way that we relate to everything that we have. And that's a general statement, but I feel that today specifically for this room, he is calling you. I want you to hear this word for you. He is calling you to a radical shift in the way you view and operate in and with your, quote-unquote, your money. Scriptures say that everything is God's. Every single thing that you have is a gift. Oh, but I've worked hard with the breath that he gives you, with the intellect that he gives you, with the circumstances in which you were born that he gave you. Everything is his. And God is radically committed to seeing humanity flourish. But this is the problem. We have another story. We have another story that we listen to. But Psalm 1611 says this, You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that the text of our life? That we believe whenever God calls us to sacrifice, whenever God calls us to give, whenever God commands anything in Scripture, is it our view that it is for our good? Is it in your bones, is it in your gut that when you see something in Scripture, you say, this is for my good, this is for my flourishing. God is interested in human flourishing. But there's another story. There's a story of the billionaire boy. There's another story in our culture that says the way to happiness, the way to human flourishing is to have and to keep and to hoard and to own. But this is, this is not new. When Jesus was tempted, Jesus was called into ministry at about 30 years old and he was baptized. And then straight after his baptism, he says the spirit sent him into the wilderness, into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And Satan tempted him in three ways. He, for the first way was, you are what you do. Satan said, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, I'm not what I do. The second one was, you are what others think. He, he told Jesus, go to the pinnacle of the temple where there are thousands of people there. Throw yourself off. Angels will catch you. They'll think well of you. And Jesus said, no, I'm not what others think. But the last one, the, la- the last one that our text confronts on its head is that you are what you have. Jesus was brought up to uh, a mountain and he saw all the kingdom- kingdoms of the world. And Satan said to him, if you would just bow your knee, everything will be yours. You are what you have. Jesus was tempted just like us with the lie that we are what we own, that we are what we have And I'm here to tell you today that it's a lie. You are not what you own. You are not the sum total of your treasure. You are not the sum total of your bank account. You are not the sum total of your money. And unless you hear that, unless you hear Jesus' command to be radically generous in the story of God's fierce commitment to your flourishing, you'll think it's just another command. And a lot of us, I know, when we, when we may read the scriptures, we think, is this, I mean, this is my body. This is my sexuality. I should be able to do with it what I want. This is my money. I worked for This is my home. These are my... And over and over and over again, we fall for the lie that what we have 
is ours and not his. In Matthew 19, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him, how can I receive eternal life? And Jesus says, go to the poor, give what you have, and you'll possess eternal life, and you'll have treasures in heaven. And in our text, verse 20, he says this, but lay up for yourselves this same phrase, treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And the question is this, what does it look like to store treasures in heaven? See, God and Jesus, they're not anti-fun, they're not anti-storing, they're not anti-investment. So often we see, we see Jesus as anti-money, anti-treasures. He's just the best investor. He says, okay, let's say you invest your money solely on yourself. You will find happiness for maybe 80 years if you're lucky. You'll deteriorate and you'll leave it to someone who you don't know. You don't know if your kids are going to be wise with it. Ecclesiastes says, you don't know what's going to happen with it. And that's a sort of investment. But Jesus says, I have a better investment. If you invest it in other people, you will have treasures in heaven where, wrath, where, where rust and moth cannot destroy. Do you believe that word? Because until we start to practice radical generosity, until we get this message, not just in our heads, but in our guts, in our bones, in our habits, we won't believe this word. And we won't act on it. And we'll continue in the cycle. We'll continue living according to the story of our culture, which is, which is thousands and thousands of years old, which says you are what you have. Do not lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And the way, sorry, treasures on earth, but in heaven. And the way that we do that, the way that we store up treasures in heaven is this radical generosity. Radical generosity. You are not what you have. You are not what you own. And Jesus continues this. Throughout the whole sermon, Jesus is committed to joining the heart and the action of a person. He is committed to making sure that we are people of integrity, that disciples, you as a disciple of Jesus, are to be someone of integrity. And what that means is that your whole person is integrated, that your heart is not saying something in your hands or doing something else. And so he continues and he says, for where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, where you are investing your hope, your investment for happiness, that's where your heart is. You can sing all day long. You can preach all day long. You can pray all day long. Where your treasure is, that, Jesus says, is where your heart is. And so, we follow our bank accounts. And that is going to lead us to who we truly love. Jesus ends, I'm going to skip a couple of verses. Verse 24, we're running out of time. No one can serve two masters, for, he, so, uh, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so this is not just a question of what we do, although that's important, but of what we love. 
And what we love is fueled by the vision of the good life that we have. What is the good life to you? What does it look like for you to flourish? What does it look like for you to be happy? Is it found here through radical generosity? Because Jesus says this. He says that if you give, you will flourish. This is a, the whole manifesto is a manifesto for human flourishing. And even, you know, we, we think about uh, uh, the empirical or, or, or social sciences, even this is catching up with Jesus. In a book called The Paradox of Generosity, Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson, they, they studied what they did. They studied the correlation between someone's uh, um, uh, practices, habits of giving of their time, their treasure, their talents, and their levels of perceived happiness. And they say this, people may rightly wonder whether being a generous person and acting generously is a costly course of life. You're giving. They might ask whether spending money, time, attention, energy, and emotions on and for the good of others proves to be a net loss in the overall scheme of things. The answer here is clear and compelling. Greater generosity is clearly positively associated with many of the characteristics that most people consider essential to a good life. Happiness, health, purpose, and growth. That is a significant finding with major implications for life. And this is what I'm not saying, that if you give, God owes you. That God is some sort of Excel spreadsheet, that if you enter this formula in here, this will pop out over here. That's not what that book is saying. That's definitely not what I'm saying. That is definitely not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is this. We all live according to a story. Is the story that you are living according to leading to flourishing? Because it's saying here that radical generosity is that. So two things I want to, uh, a couple things that I want to end up with, and two ways that we are going to become radically generous. I want to see this church be known. You know, in in um, in the scriptures, uh, churches uh, were known for their generosity. We know, Paul says. We've heard of even in your extreme poverty you gave. I want to be known as a church who is radically generous. Two things that we need. One is we need a a vision of Jesus. We need to see who he is. One of my favorite texts in scripture is found in Colossians. It says this, if then you have been raised with Christ... So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Is that that a reality for you? Christian, if if you're here and you follow Jesus, do, do you see yourself as this? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now listen to this. Verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Oh, does that fuel you? Listen to this. When Christ, who is your life, not Christ who is a footnote on your life, not Christ who has come to remake your life, not Christ who makes your life, but Christ who is your life. Is Christ your life? Because until we savor and see him as beautiful We cannot and we will not be integrated in whole people who are radically generous. So it's not just what we do, it's who we see. But the second thing is we need to put it into practice. 
So if you're here and you've partnered with us, if you call Anchor Home, are you giving? That's a challenge to you personally. Are you giving of your time, your talent, and your treasures? And if not, start, begin. There's uh, uh, Chris Kwok um, uh, gave a beautiful seminar at our Weekend Away that I believe is posted on our family page. At least the, uh, uh, the spreadsheet is. Uh, maybe it's an issue of budgeting that that can help you with. Maybe you just don't know how to give. Maybe you just don't know the avenues to give. Or maybe, maybe this is the word for you. That where our treasure is, that is where our heart will be. But if you already partner with us financially, let me encourage you, let me challenge you to go back to the drawing board. Are you giving radically? Are you giving the way that God has given to you? And finally, uh, just pray. Pray that the Lord will reveal to you who we serve. Are we serving money in this room today? You know, uh, you, you, you drive around Sydney and there are beautiful homes that you have to sell, you know, your kidneys for or your, I don't know what you need to do to get into the market. But that's, that's a huge grip on our hearts and our imaginations. That as we drive, we're looking at these homes and we say, what if, I wish, if only. And we fuel our imaginations with stories of human flourishing. And my challenge to you is to fuel your imagination with the picture of flourishing that the Sermon of the Mount gives us. And today, it's calling us to be radically generous. So we're going to do something a little bit different. Today, we're going to pray together. And I want you to feel comfortable maybe praying in your head. Pray out loud with me. But I'm going to ask you to actually do something now, okay? Don't get weirded out. I'm not going to go and hold you at gunpoint. But if you have your wallet or your pocketbook, I want you to take it out. I want you to take it out. I just want to hold I just want You don't need to raise it up. Just hold it in your hand. And I want you to feel the call of Jesus on your life today. And I want you to pray with me. As we ask the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts to make us into the people that he's calling us to be. Holding that in your hand, I want you to pray this prayer with me. It'll be behind me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say it, and I want you to say it after me. Is that all right? Can we have some class participation? Yeah. All right, family, let's go. Father, you are an abundant giver. There is nothing that I have that you have not given me. The way of your kingdom is the way of generosity. Help us to honor you with our resources. Free us from the deceit of riches. And lead us on the path of generosity. For your glory, Lord. For the abundance of our own lives. And for the sake of others. Amen.